This is his true face. Welcome back to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by the fabulously talented Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. Uh, we are guestless this week. We're, we're riding solo. And I'm curious to see how, uh, how many strange tangents we can limit ourselves to when we're on our own. Oh, man, I have no idea. Uh, definitely. It's one of those things where I think it's like it's something about April. It's that time of the month where all of my academic friends are just too busy <laughs> to, to do a podcast about Twin Peaks. So uh, so we'll have to see if we can dig deep and find some good tangents to make That's up right. for it. Yeah. And all, all my pals lately are like anti-fascist protesters that don't watch television. So I, I can't <laughs> help you at all. I want to thank our, our round of, of recent guests, uh, particularly Sarah and Jessica and Ricky. Uh, it's been a, a great few weeks on the podcast. I hope you all have enjoyed it very much, and I hope you all will enjoy it just as much when we ride uh, Sans Extras. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, before we go any further, uh, a quick small correction to last week's episode. We did previously state that there were uh, that there were no gay characters on the show, which we actually previously contradicted in an episode uh, prior where we uh, talked about Philip and the fact that uh, he was, you know, in love with a man, which, of course, doesn't strictly speaking make you gay necessarily, but, you know, it's, uh, it it does, it is perhaps a a contradiction in things we have stated, so, you know, heaven forbid we make factual errors on the Lodgers, Uh, we we try to stay... There are so many. I feel. I feel like there's another one that I should uh, point out that I feel bad about. Um, not not only the the fact that I totally had that wrong when I said there were no gay characters on the show, um, or, or maybe yeah, just not wrong entirely, but it's not completely correct either. Mm-hmm. But the other one, and I actually feel really bad about this. I'm embarrassed that I got this so wrong. Um, was I think I said more than once that the woman who played Sid, the legal assistant um, to the judge guy was a uh, First Nations actress, and she is totally not. And I don't know where I had, like, invented that in my head, and I am kind of embarrassed that I said that, because it is totally not right, and I feel very bad about that. Um, I'm not sure if that was something that, like, I wanted to be the case or something, and so I just sort of invented it. I really don't know, but um, but yes, it is definitely not right, so apologies for that. It's okay. And- our, our our payroll has been docked accordingly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yep. before we get into the meat of things, once again, I just wanted to, to mention to everyone to visit uh, SortedCinema.com slash GoombaStomp.com if you like video games, and also to rate, review, etc. the stuff on iTunes. Uh, we always appreciate more feedback, even if you want to say mean things. At this rate, I'm ready for the mean. Totally ready <laughs> for the mean. I can, I can deal with it. Um, so this week, we are talking about episodes five and six of season two. That is The Orchid's Curse, written by Harry Pullman and directed by Graham Clifford. And Demons, written by Harley Payton and Robert Engels, and uh, directed by Leslie Lincoln Glatter, once again, who we mentioned last week. Uh, 
Yeah. So let's let's get into it. Wait, Simon, before we start talking about the episodes, oh, there yeah. is something yes, there's something I have been trying to remember to make time to talk about on the podcast for basically uh, I don't know, three weeks now. Um I wanted to talk about it when we were doing the season two first episode, uh, because, and I didn't even get time to mention this when we were talking about the, that episode, uh, the Lynch directed episode, the 90 minute one, but that episode is structured so much as a throwback to the pilot of the show period. You get a lot of references to the pilot. Um, so something I found out about, like this was actual original research. Uh, I did not just get this from another book. Wait, wait, are um, you calling this an exclusive? <laughs> this is, this is one of those twin peaks, like, archaeological kind of uh, research. This is what you get when you have a, a Harvard PhD student who has not enough time but has interestingly connected friends who can tell her cool things. I think two weeks ago, uh, reading about uh, one of these episodes, I came across a, a quote by somebody, I think somebody who had worked as a cameraman or something, on uh, Twin Peaks, who was quoted saying he had found out about the show when he had seen the pilot at the Telluride Film Festival, almost a year before it played on television. And uh, for viewers who don't know, I have worked at the Telluride Film Festival for 10 years, off and on. Simon has also been one year, um, Mm -hmm. which was super fun. But uh, yes, I've worked there forever. And so I have friends who have been at the festival for, you know, 30 years. uh, And I reached out to one of them and asked if he remembered uh, if Twin Peaks, the pilot, had played at the festival. Because I had never heard this before. And I've read all of the Telluride programs, and I had never seen anything to this effect. And uh, coincidence of coincidence, this person uh, whose name is Doug Mobley and who is amazing and shout out to Doug for being awesome. uh, Doug Mobley was actually working as the intern that year looking at uh, videos of things as they were sent in. So Doug got to watch uh, the the pilot, which at that time was still being called Northwest Passage, got to uh, see it like before anybody even at the festival did. And the people who saw it at the festival saw it almost a year in advance of it playing on television. Wow. And more, and more than that, Doug got to write the program notes for it. And he sent me the program notes from, Holy uh, shit. yeah, yeah, exactly. From the Twin Peaks, uh, from the, the 16th Telluride Film Festival in 1989. So here is the program copy uh, that Doug wrote. David Lynch has a kindler, gentler blue velvet for Bush's America. His special brand of organic unease now gurgles beneath the placid face of a northern gothic town where health, industry, and death go hand in hand. His latest trip to the netherworld, co-written with Mark Frost, begins with the discovery of a plastic wrap body of a teenage girl and moves like blood chilled by fresh air, taking slow and perfectly natural turns on its mysterious course. The Alpine Lake community is a marvelously developed organism. At its cruel heart is a modern high school populated by 50s-style thugs and cheerleaders concealing secret lives. Kyle McLaughlin is the shrewd FBI man, effusive to a tape recorder named Diane, and gleeful about the local Douglas firs and cherry pies. Uh, so yeah, so it play- and it played with a short called Subject of the Picture by George Feitzgable, who is a Swiss, a Swiss filmmaker. Uh, yeah, and, and in person at the Telluride Film Festival, because Telluride always requires that somebody come with the film, in person was Mark Frost and Michael Onkeen. So, Holy anyway. crap. I had no idea, so I find this super fascinating. So there is there's some real original kind of uncovery for uh, two true Twin Peaks diehards. Thank you to Doug for sending that. That is awesome. Holy crap. You've been teasing this to me for weeks, but I had no idea it would be this awesome. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> Man, I wish I had been there. I can't even imagine uh, what it would have been like. So, anyway. I just want to say that the one time I went to Telluride, Kate won a trip to Scotland with Tilda Swinton. 
So, <laughs> and by one, Simon means I beat his hand into the air by like a split second and beat him because we were both people who had answers to this trivia question, but I was just sitting slightly closer to the front than Simon. <laughs> oh, it is a it is a travesty. Kate, if the world the was a better place, course of my life could have been different. Okay. <laughs> Um, yes, I did get to meet Tilda Swinton and she did invite me to her castle in Scotland. <laughs> this was a real thing that really happened after I won a round trip, two round trip tickets to London because I knew trivia about Tilda Swinton. Simon also knew this trivia. Uh, sadly, we did not end up going to Tilda Swinton's castle. They were out of town when we finally made it. But she was a lovely, lovely, sweet woman. I cannot say enough enough nice things about her. And not just because she is one of the few other people on the planet who understands how awesome Keanu Reeves is. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, this is a whole other story. Enough about the bitter landscape of my regrets. <laughs> and back to Twin Peaks. Uh, so, yeah. Let's uh, let's start with the Orchid's Curse. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is actually a really eventful episode. Um, it, yes. of course, uh, culminates with the raid on One-Eyed Jacks, which is extremely violent, uh, much more so than I remembered. Uh, and features a lot of stuff before that, of course, with uh, our, our good old friend Harold. Uh, I wanted to mention one little piece of trivia that a lot of Twin Peaks fans probably won't know previously or care about, uh, which is that the guy who plays uh, Leo's defense attorney is named Van Dyke Parks. I presume no relation to Michael Parks. Um, and he is one of the most legendary arrangers lyricists and to some degree songwriters in like contemporary music history and i had no idea he was gonna be showing up on screen uh for those who don't know i mean he worked with the everyone from the beach boys to much more recently joanna newsom on her east album like has collaborated like he his main thing is string arrangements but he also uh, wrote some incredible records in the 70s like song cycle uh look look his stuff up sometime it's it's super super interesting and cool um, and the fact that he shows up here in like a one scene cameo is very bizarre. I'm sure there's a story behind it that someone can tell us about. Um, uh, it, it does meaningfully connect maybe to the fact that there are so many musicians slated to show up in the new season of Twin Peaks, but maybe we shouldn't talk about that quite yet. Anyway, I just wanted to get that little bit of weird trivia that I freaked out about and that no one else will care about out of the way. No, it's awesome. I, so I mentioned uh, Simon mentioned that piece of trivia to me earlier when I wrote him to say that I was really surprised to figure out that, um, like, I think when we mentioned the episode that was directed by Caleb Deschanel, uh, when we were talking about it last season, I actually don't remember if we said this on the show or not, but, uh, we knew that Caleb Deschanel, uh, as a cinematographer is the father of those, the two actresses, uh, Zoe Deschanel and, I'm going to forget the sister's name. What is the sister's name? Emily. Zoe and Emily Deschanel. Yes. We knew we knew that he was uh, their father. But I did not know that uh, the, the actress in Twin Peaks who plays Donna Hayward's mother uh, is married to him or was married to him. I actually don't know if that still stands, but was at the time. And is their mother. So there's like, you know, this Twin Peaks dynasty. Right. <laughs> actually, actually, that gives me an excellent segue to talk about more than trivia. Uh, when it comes to Twin Peaks, David Lynch, and his whole deal, um, there's a lot of dynasties kicking around in like the in like the Twin Peaks verse. There's a lot of people related to other people, and there's that extends to the fact that you've got David Lynch's, I mean, the son, as it turns out, as I learned, uh, making a cameo, as well as Jennifer Lynch when she was about 1920, 
uh, writing the secret diary of Laura Palmer, which I find totally fascinating because a it's very very unusual. I mean, in in terms of major sort of TV or Hollywood projects to have this level of family involvement, and b it seems to really meaningfully connect to the show, and and uh, obviously more broadly to Lynch's concerns and his other films and works. But in terms of you know when we get scenes like. I, see, I'm already jumping the gun and getting into the next episode, which I apologize for. But, you know, Audrey and her wrangling with what it is to have this newly complicated relationship with her father. I just I find it fascinating that Lynch has this, you know, production model that is so reliant on these intimate connections more so than sort of, I, I guess, traditional professional vetting of, of players and writers. Uh, and meanwhile, the show itself seems to be really interrogating, like, are, are are these family units really is is you know the American nuclear family really as, as as wholesome a set of relationships as we're led to believe? And as with so many points that I make on the show, I don't really know where I'm going with this. But well, I like if I wanted to add some stuff about Jennifer Lynch as well because I have been kind of fascinated by this whole question. Like reading reading the Secret Diary of, Diary of Laura Palmer. I mean, I think a it's it's a point worth making that I think Jennifer Lynch really should be given some credit as kind of like an authorial presence in the second season of the show because she was basically given free reign to write that book. Like she approached them and said, I would like to write this book. And they said, sure. And, and I think they had conferred with her and they gave her, um, she knew who the killer was, but, but wrote around it obviously. Um, but yeah, she was sort of largely given free reign to kind of fill in this backstory for Laura. I mean, it wasn't, I don't think, I'm sure somebody will tell me if I'm wrong about this, but the story I've always heard is that is that she sort of did most of that on her own. And like, you know, Frost and, and Lynch were sort of looking over her shoulder a little bit, but it was largely her. And then I find it really fascinating that, that she wrote a lot of this stuff that then inevitably ends up shaping what happens in the second season. And we'll see an episode, we'll see an example of that. Uh, I think it's in the first episode we're talking about today, the scene where, <coughs> excuse me, the scene where um, Donna sort of it, it like verbally is kind of seducing uh, Harold uh, and tells the story about Josh and Rick and Tim. Um, that, for example, is like, it, that's a story that Jennifer Lynch invented for The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. And there you get Laura's version of it and here you get Donna's version of it. Um, but anyway, I think that's really interesting that the sort of 19-year-old daughter of Lynch is given that level of kind of influence. And, and again, to her credit, I don't, think the, I don't think they expected the book to be nearly as big of a deal as it ended up being. That's one thing. The other thing I was going to say... Again, for anybody who's read that book, I find it kind of amazing that that Jennifer Lynch, like, it's an intense read, that book. And, like, the idea that, that she was writing it for her father's television show mm -hmm. is kind of intense. And then I've read a quote from her somewhere where she says she knows that Frost has read the book, but... She said, she went on record saying, I'm not even sure my father has ever looked at it. Like, she was like, I would be surprised if he's ever wow. looked at it. So there's clearly something there. But anyway, yeah. Jennifer Lynch is a very, very interesting person. And I know that because I've seen some of her movies. I've seen <laughs> one. I've only seen Surveillance. I haven't seen uh, Boxing Helena. Or Hiss. Hiss? Do you I know that one? That. No. Hiss. Okay. This is a, this is a story worth recounting for viewers, uh, listeners rather. Uh, so Hiss was a movie that she made in India, and um, I, I believe that she was trying to essentially like circumvent the Bollywood system, and it was about a snake woman, and I would love to tell you more about it, except that I didn't get to see it, because it was supposed to play at the Festival de Nouveau Cinema, 
maybe eight or nine years ago, which I was there in Montreal at the time to watch, among other films, but it was canceled at the last minute. It was pulled at the last minute, so I didn't get to watch it. However, there was a documentary made about the making of Hiss. But, and I keep, I keep pronouncing it that way, by the way, because it has like four or five S's at the end of it. And apparently she really, she had a very frustrating time dealing with sort of the Bollywood system. And the documentary about the making of it actually looks more interesting potentially than the film is. And I really hope to see it sometime. But she's definitely a very interesting figure. Surveillance itself is kind of like a weird ersatz, like C-movie takeoff yeah. of a David Lynch film in a weird way. Yeah, I did not like surveillance very much. And and I, I mean, I think I, you know, dragged my husband to watch it or something because I was kind of fascinated with Jennifer Lynch, period. And I think, um, I mean, again, I've never seen Boxing Helena, but the, the famous story about it, right, is that she made this film with uh, Sherilyn Fenn in the lead. And I think Julian Sands is the male actor. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it was reviled by, you know, like, quote unquote, feminists. Like, there was a really strong reaction against it as as it, that it was sort of this misogynistic film and i again i'm mostly just interested i would like to know more about this because i've never seen it i've never dug that much into the politics of it but i know that jennifer lynch sort of disagrees but i i haven't you know i'm i'm interested anyway after she made that film i think she had a very difficult time getting things made which i i'm interested i wonder if that's why she ended up trying to work in the bollywood system i don't know mm. um but surveillance is not a great no it's not <laughs> i mean it's, it's a good film i'll say this for surveillance it's not boring yeah that is true and it does have a uh, bill pullman you know like mm. dark bill pullman which is always fun <laughs> fun bill yeah. pullman is dark uh, bill pullman so yes i hope you're enjoying tangents this week because despite my <laughs> earlier warning we're totally embracing them anyway uh one of my other favorite things about this episode i have, actually have a lot of things about this episode that i like were you the only one who was shocked even despite our previous conversation when Cooper says he's been in town for 12 days. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> Holy crap. I was like, oh my God, all of this stuff. So right. much has happened. <laughs> During which time he's he's been able to recuperate from a triple gunshot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And and also everything that's happened like in the lives of the parents of poor Laura Palmer. Like everything that's happened to Leland, like in t 12 days. I was like, oh my God, he, you know, if this was not... Twin Peaks, he would just be lying on a couch, like weeping somewhere because yeah. it's only been 12 days. So, but, you know, it is Twin Peaks. So that's what happens. So, something that's really odd about this episode and these episodes in general, we've barely discussed Hank uh, because, yeah. frankly, I don't think he's the most interesting character the show has to offer, which I don't think is, is at all Chris Mulkey's fault. Um, is the fact that the, the cliffhanger of the previous episode had him being assaulted. Yeah. Which is never touched on in these episodes at all. Oh, it's true, hey? Yeah, he just sort of is like fine again. <laughs> He's fine. He does. He doesn't bring it up to anybody. It's not like an issue. He's not like trying to figure out why he was beaten up or anything. Uh, anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. We do get the return of uh, of Bobby and Shelley, which is great. Um, the I wanted to specifically hone in on um, obviously the scenes between Donna and Harold are a major part of this episode. Um, mm -hmm. I do think, as much as I, I, I do find Harold to be an interesting character, and the scenes where sort of Donna is seducing him and then recounting the story from the diary, um, those scenes are great. Lara Flynn Boyle is incredible in those scenes. Yeah. She's really, really great. She really like manages to sell both like the earnestness and the duplicity, which is really, really difficult. Um, but... I have to say I was thirsting for a Lynch-level uh, power 
to that final sequence of that first episode when Harold essentially, uh, essentially we, we see one of those Lynch style ruptures with him where he is betrayed and it's a very dark moment. And then we see this new dimension to him, but it just doesn't quite have the gravitas that it should. Yeah. Um, I can't remember cause I didn't have time to review these right before we talked, but is it, is it at the end of that episode where he puts the, like he takes yeah, the, the yeah. thing to his face? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and you get the kind of awkward, like, Dutch angle, which is sort of meant mm-hmm. to make it everything look stranger, but it just sort of makes it look a little awkward or silly or something. Yeah, um, it's not great. And it is weird, because the sequence with Donna, yeah, like, even just leading up to it, is really quite masterful, like, really spot on, really perfectly done. Um, I've always really found that scene kind of fascinating. I mean, I think, again, it plays into something we've been talking about a lot in the last couple of weeks, but there's this idea of, like these young women's kind of relationship to to sexuality. I remember the first time I saw that episode, like her describing this story about being a 13 year old girl and like, I don't know, a show giving that kind of um, space to like the desire of a young girl is not Mm -hmm. something that you see very often on television. I still think to this day, it's not something you see very often, like taken seriously. I mean, sure. The idea of like girls having a crush or like whatever, like that's all over the place. But this idea of like desire is a real kind of thing and, and a dangerous sort of thing for a 13 year old girl. Like, I I think that's a really fascinating thing. I think they do a great job with it. And for better or worse, if that scene had come out today, we'd be dealing with think pieces left and right about like, oh, was what Donna described rape or like, because she is, she is literally describing statutory rape in that sequence. She's 14. The guy's like 20. Um, But you know, it is, it's very much from her perspective. And it's also interesting that she doesn't describe it as like, oh, it was my first kiss. She describes it as it was the first time I fell in love, which is like pretty much the definition of unreliable teenager stuff. (laughs) Um, Um, yeah, it's also really interesting to to listen to Donna describe that scene after having read the version of it where you hear Laura's version of it from Laura's side of things because it's it's shocking. Like Laura's version of it is is entirely different than what you get. And I, I won't describe it in detail, but it's just it's a much more adult experience that Laura describes. So it's it's interesting. It 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 retroactively makes Donna's experience seem very childlike even as in the show it doesn't read that way but compared to the diary it does I, I it's interesting anyway right and i have to say the writing in these scenes is really really sharp too and uh we can credit jennifer lynch we can also of course uh credit the credited uh screenwriter uh, sorry teleplay writer uh henry palman who i assume has no relation to bill palman but at this rate who knows <laughs> I, I love that exchange between him and donna where she's like she's trying to seduce him by saying you know there are things you can't get from books. And he replies mm. with, there are things you can't get anywhere, which I think is actually one of the best lines in the entire series. Yeah. Uh, and, a, and a great line delivery too. Uh, it, it's again, it's, it's a little bit too bad that, that I think the, uh, some combination of performance and staging kind of lets down the final moments of the episode, because up until then, I think Harold is actually one of my favorite characters. Yeah. He, he has, that is one of my old, I think that's a, a great line. And then it even continues, right? When he says something like, there are things you can't get anywhere, but we convince our, like we try to convince ourselves that we can find them in other people or mm-hmm. something, which is like a great line. And then I also think, I actually can't remember if it's in this episode or the next episode, but another great line is the line where Harold says, it is the next episode. He says, you're interested in secrets or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the secret of, um, I'll, I'll tell you a great secret. I know the greatest secret or something. It's the secret of knowing who killed you or whatever. And I, for me, I think that's a genius line because it, it works as 
you feel like it is almost a reference to something. Like my response was, is he is he quoting something? Like is this the show quoting um, a film noir? Because it 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 reads to me as a line that would fit so much in in any number of kind of film noirs, right? This idea mm-hmm. of yeah. yeah, the the fatalism of the noir, like knowing where your life is going, and uh, yeah, the doomed quality of these characters. And and I don't know, I, a quick Google search did not lead me to believe that it was quote. I think it was a, a, just a, a line on its own, but it's still a, a wonderful line. Mm-hmm. I think it's also worth mentioning that Donna's kind of an asshole in this episode. Yes. Uh, especially, I mean, obviously there's the whole duplicity with her and Madeline, etc. But there's just like the whole forcing him, even before she's trying to get at the diary, she's like forcing Harold out into the light and like causing a seizure or something. She's like, come on, Donna. I know you're a teenager, but seriously. Yeah. And also, I the, there is some confusion for me still here about yeah, the kind of the structural writing of her character in these episodes, particularly because you get like I think even at one point Maddie says to her, "Don't you like this guy? Like, what are you doing?" <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> and she's like, "Yeah." And then the, and then, then the scene kind of ends, and you just never really get much of an answer to that. But I, I do find it. Um, I mean, sure, for like dramatic purposes, I get. I guess they just sort of revert to this idea of like Donna as. Uh, Nancy Drew or whatever, and she's going to come up with some scheme to get things crazy. But it, like, it's, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like she puts very much effort into to maybe trying to convince Harold that the sheriffs need to read the thing. Like, even if the sheriffs came to the house and read the diary, like, at the house or something. Right, I mean, yeah. I think there could have been more working out here before going the nuclear option of we need to steal the diary from him. Right. Well, and it's also, it, it seems like she doesn't have any interest in, in getting it to the sheriff in in this whole episode, in that whole episode. Like, it seems like she's much more interested in just, like, exploring this weird emotional space with Harold and, like, I have to say that uh, that Jizik quote that I inserted into the last episode and that we discussed ended up being very prophetic for this episode when he's literally talking about how the plants are just like platforms for insects to come in and screw them. Which is, <laughs> I'm, I'm quoting Jizik more or less verbatim here. So you know what? Jizik was totally on the money. I was I was wrong to doubt him. Oh, we definitely get another like plant vagina sequence here like an erotic uh like whatever they're what what are they called orchids like an erotic orchid Mm. encounter between the two of them there as well um so no i think yeah the zizek stuff sarah sarah's point was very well taken too about all of that yes but um yeah i don't know i mean i think uh harold in general is i i i do really like him as a character i think there's some great sequences i don't think his end yeah, works as well as was maybe envisioned. And and if you if you listen to uh, like there's quotes uh, from the actor and he sort of talks about how he wasn't he wasn't thrilled with the way that that storyline wrapped up mostly because I think they were like he describes them having to do sort of last minute rewrites around that sequence where Harold uh, catches them and like I think originally it was that he was sort of he is trying to attack them and like there was some pushback over this idea that he's so clearly a kind of nonviolent guy and then this gets transformed into him sort of attacking himself and um, but yeah I think there's some pathos we get next episode next week's episode uh, with him which is an interesting part of that payoff but I don't think these scenes work particularly well, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I honestly, I, as I said last week, I didn't remember anything about Harold or what happens with him. And I seriously think if that, if the first episode had culminated with his actual suicide, I think that would have been much more effective. 
Like this episode right here, you mean? Yeah, like if if he just literally used those very dull-looking garden uh, claws or whatever the, they mm. are. I, I'm not a gardener. They have a very obvious word for what they are, but I, I can't think of what they are. I know uh, what they're called, too, and I got, I can't think of it either. But uh, but yeah, you mean like if he had managed to take it in like cachet style, just like arterial just like, spray yeah, it all exactly. over Just like, just like t- <laughs> tuck it behind his windpipe and pull it forward, yeah. <laughs> oh, Which would have been a little bit much for network television, I realize, but... <laughs> <laughs> like he literally picks up the most ridiculous uh, gardening object. implement around, and 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 Donna and Maddie are like, oh, like we're gonna be killed. And it's like this guy really is not. Gonna He's not exactly Freddy Krueger, is he? <laughs> Again, I stick by my assessment of he's Cam's older brother from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Not not exactly the most threatening presence, um, which I think is why maybe the actor is like, why are we writing this with me attacking them? Because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But um, anyway, I do I do think there is something to this. I, I do think they do. It's, it's an interesting and worthwhile idea. Yeah, this yeah. idea of the kind of betrayal of Harold Smith, I think, is a, a worthwhile thing. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I just think it, it stylistically it could have been done a little yeah. bit better. But I, I mean, I, overall, I really like the direction of that uh, that first episode. As yeah. we've said already, the scenes with Donna. But I think there are other really great things in The Orchid's Curse, which are worth mentioning. I think um, I like the these sequences that are the courtroom sequences that take place in the Bang Bang Club or the Bang Bang Bar or whatever mm-hmm. it's called. Um, I just think there's something really inventive. Maybe this was the writer and less the director, but I think there's something inventive about this idea of it's a small town. And so they have to have a courtroom in the local like divey bar, I think it is kind of great. Like it, it's the biggest, because again, also, and this is one of these things that maybe just people forget, but in the pilot episode, there actually is a big enough space. This is the, where they hold the, um, uh, like information session where Cooper is telling people that there's, yeah, be yeah, you're right. Yes. Like there is a big enough space. Of course, what that means is that they didn't want to rebuild that set or whatever in LA. But, uh, anyway, I do think it's kind of an inventive touch having it in the bar. I like the, these scenes of, um, you know, Leland sitting in the chair and Sarah Palmer having to like peek out from behind the awkwardly situated, uh, mm-hmm. column or whatever to see what's going on in the courtroom proceedings, like things like that. I think there's some interesting touches there. Yeah. And I do like Shelly, uh, position during Leo's, uh, quasi, uh, hearing or whatever as the as the dutiful wife or whatever um that's that's a nice touch um staring at staring at the giant like uh, headshot of eric duray yes, on yes. The stage. <laughs> um th- these episodes by the way feature eric duray's greatest performance <laughs> yeah and it only gets better it's all up here it's all uphill from here with, absolutely uh, eric duray. i'm yeah. so sorry if eric duray is listening to this i feel really bad but <laughs> No, don't tell me that. I will like cry myself to sleep at night. I don't want to imagine Eric DeRay listening to us complain. Um, I whatever. Now I feel terrible. Oh my god! Don't feel bad, Eric. I'm so sorry. I know I feel bad for making you feel bad. It's just bad feelings all around. Um, I also like um the way that the um the prosecutor has this like you know this big. Uh, this big Law and Order style speech about yeah. you know the, about the town, and it, it's almost this meta moment where he's talking about the impact of these murders on the town, and the judge is like, "All right, like we get it." I know. Also, there's a, there's another version of that too, which is that um, you know, Sheriff Truman gets up and gives his speech, kind of uh, like sort of defending Leland. It's kind of a weird speech. Mm. It's like a character testimony, but it isn't really a defense. It's just like 
yeah, everybody likes him. He's his family has been here for you know a long time. Is effectively the speech. Anyway, so you hear the sheriff's speech, and then、uh, when the judge is is supposed to be giving his kind of rationale for why he's going to let Leland、uh, have bail and leave, we don't hear any of it. Like it's、no. all it's all kind of muted because you're this weird interchange with Andy, you know, wanting to be a sketch artist or whatever takes precedence over and sketching、it. the back of Leland's head, <laughs> exactly. Which is actually a really great comic touch, I have to say. It is true. There's there's another great scene. There's a great scene with Andy in this episode as well,、uh, which is the one. It's like sort of the middle of the episode where Andy is filling in for Lucy at the desk, and he's covered in the stickies, and he、mm-hmm. decides to call. He calls for his、uh, <laughs> results, the test results about the、mm-hmm. sperm stuff, and he's shouting things like, "I'm I'm not just three men on a boat. I'm a whole damn town." <laughs> like you know, I. I That actor, we haven't mentioned it really so far yet. I think Ricky talked a little bit about Andy, but we haven't mentioned、uh, Harry Goez is the name of the actor, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but that's fine.、Um, I the story is is that he, God, and now I'm realizing I should have double double checked this, but I know he was he was cast not as an actor who like came to to the casting people to Lynch through、um, the casting director. He was cast because he was a driver that Lynch met. Um, so、really? I have to admit, I, yeah. So I don't know if Harry Goes was trying to be an actor, and he just was also a driver, and this was sort of serendipitous. But I, I know that he was met. He met Lynch while he was driving Lynch, and Lynch cast him from that.、Um, and so I, I don't know. I just have always loved that version of this story because we we haven't really talked about it at all yet. But this,、um, the fact that Lynch very famously does not cast people based on. Readings like he doesn't do traditional auditions where people have to come in and read for their characters. Instead, he'll often pick people based solely on a photo, and then they come in and we'll have sort of like a conversation with him, and he'll just try to get a read on them as a kind of human,、uh, and then decide based on that because he thinks auditioning is cruel. And from everything I understand, auditioning is totally cruel. So this is sort of like a, one of those nice things about Lynch. Right. As,、um, as someone who has auditioned, I can tell you that it is cruel. Yeah, it sounds miserable. So anyway, so Lynch doesn't like to put people through that, but. Uh, for me, I find that Andy、uh, Harry Goes is such a funny version of maybe somebody like、uh, James, our other poor punching bag actor, but、uh, James Marshall, where you know, infamously, I think Lynch's ability to choose people based on photos has historically worked so amazingly well, right? I mean, he broke people like Naomi Watts with Mulholland Drive, whereas she'd been in Hollywood for ten years, fifteen years, and couldn't get a, a break. Uh, because she wasn't great at auditioning, and Lynch saw past that, and there's like this magical ability there. And clearly, with somebody like Harry Goes, like he, he is so perfect as Andy. Like, I, and I don't know how much of that is、um, Lynch's kind of synchronicity, sort of magical ability to match a kind of non-actor with. The right role, and how much of that is Goez's performance abilities, I'm not really sure. But then there's also the kind of downside of it, where you get people like James Marshall that I think maybe work to a certain point, but anything past、mm-hmm. that just stretches their performance abilities too far, and it doesn't work. Well, and I don't want to get too far off course here, but like I feel like David Lynch's casting magic really. Highlights the fact that the entire casting process, the entire casting industry. I don't want to.、Yeah. Okay, I don't want to cast too many aspersions on the casting industry, <laughs> but I th- I think that a lot of the baseline assumptions about how casting works are kind of bunk. Like they're they're based on you know keeping people employed and keeping、mm-hmm. certain certain assumptions going, so that you know our 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 feeling on acting as a job and acting acting. As you know, a task and and a discipline、uh, stay intact, and I, I think a lot of that 
really just falls apart when you watch David Lynch's work and you realize that, you know, everyone has uh, something they can, they can bring to the camera and it's just a matter of lining that up correctly. I, I, I've always been a, of the opinion that there's very, very little, uh, there's very, very few people who can't act. There's just, there's just poor casting. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, and poor directing too. And poor directing. Stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, th- I think that that's borne out in the, in the fact that he casts so many ostensible non-actors who are somehow just perfect. Um, yeah. And again, that, 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 that relies heavily on sort of Lynch and his collaborators sense of intuition or in some cases lack thereof as it turns out. I just I wanted to add one more thing because I've been trying to get this in here like since yeah, I don't yeah. know, maybe the pilot but uh, in response to this is something that I find fascinating too about Lynch as a director that again we haven't talked about but is pretty well known to people who are into Lynch is is part of this the way in which he engages people who are both professional actors and you know from the non-actor kind of end of things which is you know that he he doesn't go in for this discussion of like character motivation and and creating a kind of like sensorial emotional base that you're drawing from your childhood to like replicate how so and so feels in the scene it's it, he doesn't take that tack instead aka method aka method it's not the method actor it's not the kind of like psychological interiority creation of a character sort of thing but instead, it'll often be that he'll he'll give people um, both kind of tasks to do, which is which is a kind of more common thing in the history of cinema of like dealing with working with non-actors is that you 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 organize their work around doing things and sort of like with their hands and creating finishing tasks on screen. But anyway, so there's some of that from Lynch, but then there's also these things where he'll give people directions that are not specific to the scene, but are are more like. Um, God, again, inspirational is a terrible word, but are, but are meant to kind of like unlock something for them. So for an, mm-hmm. for an example is um, if you cast your mind back to the pilot when Ronette Pulaski is, is walking along the bridge, you get the shot of her kind of, you know, stumbling across this bridge almost. And apparently the direction that Lynch gave to her was walk like a broken doll. Hmm. And it's like, you know, I mean, who would think of that? Like, this is this is Lynch's genius. Like, he doesn't need to say to her, you've been brutalized and your knee hurts. And, like, it's none right, of that. Yeah. It's just this, give this kind of, like, really incisive, amazing material sort of visual image to someone, sonic image, that then allows them to unlock something from that. Like, I think it it really speaks to the way in which Lynch... Yeah, this idea of intuition, this idea of play, where he's able to open such things up without having to go to a certain kind of intellectualizing of it, I think is genius. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, and I think that you know when we talk about other people directing versus Lynch directing on this show, I think that points out sort of one of the unique challenges of mounting a show like this, where you know Lynch has set up the framework where he's cast like you know in some cases veteran actors, in some cases TV actors, in some cases you know non professional actors. And then you you know you sick a set of writers and directors on that who don't necessarily have uh, that you know his sense of intuition of how to work with people who don't come from that professional background, and I think that like it's when you when you think about how things d- maybe don't line up uh, on certain episodes or with certain lines of dialogue or with certain characters, like it starts to make perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're definitely gonna have to start talking soon about uh, this question of. <laughs> what what works that they set up from the beginning and what is starting to not work anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> what yeah. is starting to fall apart is going to become a I think a, a more and more pressing question yeah. as we go forward. Uh, before but we... these episodes still work, so let's let's yeah. talk about the good ones. <laughs> let's yeah. well, enjoy, I mean, enjoy while it lasts. Before we move on to demons specifically, we of course have to talk about the assault on One Eyed Jacks. 
Um, which is actually I, I was a, a much more sort of like tense and memorable sequence than I remembered. Um, a few things I wanted to highlight. I have to say that uh, Tr uh, Sheriff Truman's move with the ball and tape is smooth as hell. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm surprised I never saw replicated on like Justified or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, I specifically I. I had I had totally forgotten about and was slightly taken aback by Coop punching Blackie's sister in the stomach. Yeah, it's a little it's a little rough that whole thing. Um, <laughs> and I like I don't know. It's like you get it. Like it it makes sense, right? Because she's attacked him with a knife, so it's like sure it's justifiable. You know, oh one hundred percent fighting fighting this woman off, but it just is so hard to watch him punching this woman in the stomach it's not it's not what you want to be watching cooper do no not really i wish they'd come up with a better one-liner for for hawk than you guys don't know how to keep a secret uh like i w i honestly wish he just said like idiots or something <laughs> but it it works there's something a little weird too about that sequence where i guess you know these these questions around the sort of law and orderness of it all but like hawk Basically, he doesn't shoot him, but Hawk, uh, like, stabbing a guy in the back, effectively. No, throwing free, a knife into his like, Throwing a knife throwing into his back, knife, yeah. to, like, free to free these guys who have gone out of their jurisdiction to basically, you know, sort of do this, like, whatever. I, I, the legality of all of this is super dubious <laughs> anyway, but um, I, I just, like, for me, I'm never sure exactly how I feel about that. Like, Hawk just sort of murdering this guy and then it being like a, oh, well, we never need to talk about that again. I mean, <laughs> we, we do, there is some follow-up to Coop's role in all of that, and we right, do get yeah. it later. And, and even in this, this episode, I think, you get Coop uh, sort of saying things to the effect of, you know, this isn't the first time I've put people in danger over my need to do uh, what I need to do. And I, I do love that sequence because I think it's, again, just one of those great small moments that you get between Sheriff Truman and Coop where Truman is such a perfect match to Coop and saying, you know, it's you're not a bad guy, Coop. Like, don't give yourself such a hard time. It, it, there's just something very sweet in that interaction between them. But mm -hmm. anyway... Um, yeah, I had one more, one more scene. I wanted one more thing I wanted to mention about this episode, maybe before we move on to the next, uh, yeah. the next one too, which is just, again, the presence of Mr. Tajimura oh, <laughs> as a character, Jesus. because I found out I had no idea this was like reading I did for these episodes. Apparently it wasn't just that they thought they were fooling audience members. And I, and I don't know, I'd be kind of interested to know if anybody who was a fan at the time, if they feel like getting in touch with us to tell us if it was obvious to people that it was Piper Laurie or not. Um, because, you know, Piper Laurie's name had been scrubbed from the credits. She's not credited. And they created a fake uh, Japanese man's name as the actor who is being credited with playing Mr. Tajimura. <laughs> But apparently they even went further than that, and um, Piper Laurie wore that makeup on set all day and didn't speak to anybody when they weren't filming scenes. And this idea was that it was sort of to fool the other actors. Like, the actors were not to know that this was Piper Laurie, that this was a kind of a secret. And you can read her talking about this, and she thinks, like, maybe Kyle MacLachlan had figured it out, but not everybody else. And particularly, apparently, Jack Nance was, like, completely oblivious. Like, uh, Jack Nance plays a... Uh, Pete Martell, yeah. that Jack, Jack Nance was oblivious to this, even though she was like, we're filming this scene where we're standing right next to each other and he still didn't figure it out. <laughs> like, so anyway, I just found that utterly bizarre. Like, my question is, why? Why were the filmmakers <laughs> doing this? Like, what on earth purpose could this serve? I don't understand that at all. And by the way, but, if there are any, like, first-time viewers 
who are like following along episode by episode who hadn't figured that out and we just oh, spoiled that for you oops. like <laughs> uh i don't know what to tell you <laughs> I mean, like, really, though, it's such a ridiculous spoil. Like, it can't, like, oh, man, I guess it makes sense that somebody might not have figured that out. I feel bad in that case. uh, No, no, I, I, no, seriously, don't feel bad. Anyone who hasn't (laughs) figured that out, they're the ones who should feel bad. (laughs) I mean, it's so obviously her. Like, it's so obviously her. Uh, But uh, anyway, so, yes, apologies for that. But I (laughs) was going to say, (laughs) no, okay, I take it back. No apologies. You figure it out. Um... But I was going to say that I think already with with that kind of a story, like with this development of this sort of bizarre expenditure of energy to make Piper Laurie look like a Japanese actor on set, um, this to me I think already starts to speak to something that we will talk about maybe more after next week's episode. But um, I think there very much is a narrative that's going to start to emerge around the kind of extra stuff in the show, which is this idea that the show starts to unravel because Lynch and Frost were forced to reveal Laura's killer uh, and were forced to kind of build things up to that reveal, um, which happens soon. And I just, I think I've always maybe had a bit of an issue with that narrative being that simple. And I think there are things here that we can see are already kind of a problem. Like for one thing, I think in these, in these two episodes, particularly and and even the last two before it, maybe mm-hmm. some of the strongest, some of the strongest stuff in these episodes is the stuff that is building up to the reveal of Laura's killer. Like that is still really the heart of the show. And I think, you know, I mean, it, it can always be this question of like, what is and what would have happened and et cetera, et cetera. But I, if, if we are imagining a fantasy version of Twin Peaks where Lynch and Frost were allowed free reign and never had to reveal Laura's killer or didn't reveal Laura's killer until the end of this season, it's not like the show in these early episodes had a great plan for what they were going to be doing instead. Right. You know what I mean? It's like we're already getting these like really baffling choices like with Nadine and with Mr. Tajamora oh, and... Nadine. It just doesn't, like, I, yeah, I just, we can maybe keep talking about that later, but I, I just, I think it's time to start pushing back against this narrative that the show only gets bad because they were forced to reveal Laura right. and uh, Laura's killer. So before we were, we were pushing back against the idea that it gets back, bad started with season two, and now we're pushing <laughs> pushing back against the idea that it only gets bad after Laura's killer is revealed. Exactly. It starts <laughs> to get slowly. Right. I mean... I don't like, it's not like I, you know, the Mr. Tajamora stuff, I don't care and I don't particularly like it, but it's also not like atrociously silly either. And and Nadine's, Nadine's sequences are starting to get a bit goofy. I think it's, maybe it's this episode or the next one where you get that weird scene where there's like a weird special effect as Nadine lifts up the fridge door that she's just sort of pulled off of its hinges. Um, you know, things like that are a bit silly, but I, at this point, I still think it's not, it's not terrible either. Like I'd still, they still, those, those scenes still kind of are they work well enough within a larger framework that it's not like derailing the episodes right. or anything, but yeah. So I guess we should now specifically talk about demons, AKA the arrival of Lynch himself. Yeah. Um, who's like, I really love the idea that like, even as the, as like you'll see over like the next few weeks of this podcast, like eventually the show's fortunes start sinking, but like Lynch just really enjoys acting. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of doesn't care <laughs> or something oh uh, yeah gordon cole i i do find it kind of funny again with the sort of like extra textual stuff here which is that the network 
is putting increasing pressure on Lynch and Frost to reveal Laura's killer. They were really unhappy about it. It had been kind of on the record saying that from early on that they didn't want to do that, but were being told by the network in no uncertain terms that they sort of had to. And and yet it's like here you get Lynch kind of showing up, like having, yeah, like a great time <laughs> on the episode is, is again, kind of an, a weird oddity to this narrative right. of them sort of fighting it out with the network. But, um, but, but yeah, Gordon Cole is a truly lovely character yeah. and he, and he only gets better going forward. And I thought, I think it's really interesting that again, the questioning this whole notion of expertise and acting, you know, Lynch was, here's a guy who ha- really hadn't done any on-screen acting until only a couple years earlier in that film we mentioned, like, way back four or five episodes ago with Isabella Rossellini. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I gather just kind of got the acting bug. It was just like, yeah, I, I feel like doing it. This is, like, a fun thing I want to do. And and you get that, that, that infectiousness uh, in his performance. This is just a guy who, f- through his directing, knows what he has to do on screen and knows how to how to get things from people. It's this totally different route to, to eliciting uh, good stuff on screen that like, I, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on the, on the science of performance. Uh, perhaps one day we can get one on the show, but uh, like clearly a lot of the, of what Lynch does sort of flies in the face of that expertise. Um, anyway, demons. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> uh, once again, we have Leslie Lincoln Gladder behind the camera. Uh, despite her expertise, I don't feel like she can really, um, she doesn't really rescue uh, the, the the that Harold Smith cliffhanger. Yeah, uh, you know this. Oh, you were unclean. Like, oh, okay, we're going there <laughs> with him. Uh, that's too bad. I, I I I unfortunately felt like I had to write him off as a character after that scene. Um, but yep. uh, there's there's definitely some good stuff here this week, uh, despite as you mentioned, sort of the the beginnings of certain aspects of the decline. But until I I talk about other good stuff, I mean, I think we have to return to, to the to the topic of Josie. I think it's interesting that like possibly the most leering shot of Josie of the entire show comes from a female director. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, Yeah. I assume you were talking about the shot of her on the couch with her kind of back. Yeah. Where we started her ass and move upwards. Let's just, let's (laughs) be crass about it since the show was. It's true. And I also, um, because I just today listened to the episode where uh, the last episode we recorded with uh, Sarah as a guest, and I think Sarah says something like, oh, this is where we get her brother is introduced. And I, at the time, I meant to say, I don't think it's her brother. And I (laughs) I forgot to get to that point. Keep it in the family, man. (laughs) It's like, yeah, maybe now we know that it's probably not her brother. Um, It's thing is a very that whole relationship is very unclear to me i mean i find that i've always found that sequence very strange that like is it sort of supposed i don't know i we don't have to parse through the details of it but it it reads very much as if it like as if she's been sort of forced into this sexual relationship with this guy because he has something over her or something i i don't know it, it it's very unclear yeah. that whole thing with him my other question about like josie in this episode is like has everyone fucked Josie or like does everyone just feel really comfortable with getting like right up in her face because like we get Ben in this episode previously we had Hank and obviously there's the sheriff and probably some other characters I'm forgetting about is like do is she are we really supposed to understand that she's like been with everybody or is this just like another level of the show's weird orientalism where she's just like a possession that everyone can lay claim to at any moment I, I don't know. I mean, for me, I think this is complicated. And it's like, I, 
I think I say this every week because it's I the Josie character. Uh, as much as I think there is real problems with that character, and we've talked a lot about how like you know, she has very little agency and all of this stuff, I do still think it's maybe worth pointing out sometimes too that I think Lynch's general kind of like approach to the question of like centering women at the at, like the center of his narratives usually um, tends to maybe walk a line between yeah giving sort of this clear space to kind of um, female centric sort of questions and narratives. But, but then also his fascination with what he's referred to, I think, as like a woman in trouble, which mm-hmm. is also the subtitle of uh, Inland Empire. Um, but yeah, this idea that so many of his characters are women in trouble. And I think the Josie character, for me, there is some interest there, particularly in these sorts of episodes, we start to get this maybe going forward more. Um, this idea that there is there is a female character that, that tends to sort of show up sometimes. And she is very much kind of, I think, loathed by a certain form of feminist thought. And this is the female character whose role is to be a kind of passive, almost punching bag. Like, this is this mm-hmm. character, right? I mean, and, and, you know, like, there's characters like uh, like the the film Wanda by Barbara Loden, if nobody's seen it, is is really amazing and is a really fascinating example of this. And I don't know, I think... The Josie character is like this question of, you know, why do we expect, like, this idea that we want the female character to have a certain kind of agency ends up being another way in which we tend to turn her into a punching bag. It's like Mm -hmm. that it's already a problem that she isn't able to do more. And I think the fact that you have all of these scenes with Josie being perpetually kind of trodden all over by the men in the town... You know, I, I'm not I'm not defending it by saying this was all intentional and there was some great feminist like intervention that they were making with Josie, but I, I do think it's important to not just automatically say that like this character is a terrible bad example of a certain kind of feminist thought. I think it's important to acknowledge that there are plenty of women in the world who don't have access to that kind of agency mm-hmm. and a form of like passivity and subjugation is something that they have to deal with, and this doesn't make them any less of a kind of like worthwhile form of experience. And I'm not saying that's what you said, but I just, this is something I've been trying to think about with Josie. And I don't know. I also think she gets to kind of have a bit of a showdown with Ben Horn in this episode, which is fun, right? Like that she's outsmarted Ben and like that, that's fun, you know? So. Yeah. I I do think it's interesting that like, you know, a few years later, Joan Chen would end up directing a feature that is very much about, as I understand it, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, a central female character who is very much not someone who is permitted agency and is very much uh, put upon for pretty much the entirety of her days. Uh, I don't really necessarily want to read too much into that. To move on to other aspects of demons, uh, I think we have to talk about... uh, We have to talk about Shelly and Bobby and Leo. (laughs) (laughs) Because, holy crap, those sequences with, with catatonic Leo in the house and the kazoo are some of the most insane of the entire series. Mm-hmm. But they still work. I mean, I think oh, we're, like, yeah, we're yeah, not... Yeah. yeah, we're definitely not... Because there, there will be scenes later with Leo that will be questionable. But I think there is... They, um, Gladder here walks like a great line between a certain kind of goofiness that's already apparent and this idea of Leo being, uh, you know, an invalid. There's already a certain kind of goofiness there, but she does a great job, like, even just with that thing with the kazoo and the glasses Mm -hmm. where his head nods down and Shelly freaks out. And it is a genuine scare. Like, I remember that for the first time that happened. It really threw me. Um, And I, I also think there's some great stuff in that scene where you have Bobby, who's doing most of the talking, kind of effectively listing all of the ways in which 
this sort of revelation in Leo's downfall is it feels very justified, right? You know, Leo mm-hmm. is the wife beater, Leo as the killer, Leo is all of these things. And you're like, yeah, Leo, you suck. And then, and then it switches, right? Like Leo sort of nods down, Shelly freaks out and it switches and Bobby and Shelly very much switch then into this immediate mode of like apologizing and sort of realizing that this is actually really awful. Like even though Leo is not a good guy and is a bad dude that maybe, you know, like treating him this way is not appropriate still. And so it, it sort of like speaks again to this thing. It's like, this is why you love Bobby and Shelly, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're, yeah. yeah. Because there's this whole history of, of Bobby being this tough guy who's actually really easily spooked. Like, mm-hmm. and I think this is why Bobby is one of the best characters. Like he actually has, uh, we, there's been at least two instances of like just a little bit of prodding and he starts bawling. Like he's, he's really not the tough guy he appears to be. And, you know, all it takes is, like, a slight sloop of the head from Leo, and uh, and he's back to, oh, don't, uh, uh, this, anyway, um, yeah, it's a great, actually a, a great, great and very unusual sequence. I can't imagine how viewers at the time must have felt, considering how I now feel watching it in 2017. Um, the, uh, another sort of very strong sequence, I think, comes right at the end, which is, of course, the one-armed man sequence. Uh, A.K.A. Philip Gerard. Let's let's give him his full name. Uh, as he is, um, <laughs> uh, here's an interesting thing. They deny him his meds, which then ends up helping them in their investigation. Uh, so there's some 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 so- some more solid ethical police slash federal investigation work. Uh, <laughs> A bit dubious, I'll just leave that but... there. Uh, but uh, shit, now I have to pull up his name too. Al Strobel as Philip is is so yeah, great in this sequence. Um, and again, not an easy easily uh executable sequence um i think this is one of the few non-lynch directed sequences that sort of accesses that level of um sort of uh sinister evil that we hope for out of twin peaks at its darkest yeah agreed i I think this is this one this sequence to me like if you ask me to sort of remember off the top of my head which sequences were kind of the, the quote lynchian sequences in the show i would remember this as one of them even though it is not a lynch directed sequence but um i know i think it the the it's masterful here like this the use of the sound effects with um the kind of manipulation of uh Strobel's voice so that you get something like a kind of echo of what you hear out of bob in the episode in the sequence that ended the first episode in the second season where mm-hmm. you get Bob in the train car and this sort of manipulated kind of reverberated voice. Um, you get the same thing from uh, Philip Gerard, which then sort of kicks you into this sort of second space, right? This like mystical space of Twin Peaks. And I just think the writing here is fantastic too. Like the, some of the lines that he gets where he's um, describing Bob and he says mm-hmm. something like he, he is Bob eager for fun. He wears a smile, everybody run it, like it, it just gets at this idea of the, the the way in which these characters of this other mystical space talk is almost like a child. It's almost like a childhood, uh, like rhymes or something. It's like very childish, childlike, which makes it all the creepier. Like the fact mm. that they exist at this sort of childish level. I I don't know. I find that terrifying. Yeah. Um. I wanted to mention also since I I wanted I I meant to mention this when we were first talking about the sequence, but I do find it interesting that through Leo we get more sort of infirmity and disability sort of creeping into the show. Uh, What I feel about that or what I think I haven't quite parsed yet. I just wanted to mention that so that perhaps I can parse it later Um, before we sort of ended, which we should be doing soon. I know it seems like we rushed here uh, is I wanted to return 
to the IRC archives uh, before we... Uh, I, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that very soon, and by very soon I mean next week, we learn the true identity of Laura's killer. And this is something that had already been teased as of uh, the when they were airing the the first episode that we're reviewing this week they were already teasing that two weeks from from then they would be uh telling people who killed laura and uh, so of course the ircs were firing off everyone was giving their opinions and i wanted to read uh in particular from november 10th 1990 uh Diarmid and his take on who killed laura and uh i'm, I'm not going to read all of this but i will read some and he says <clears throat> Ben Horn did it. Here's the scoop. One, Ben rests at the center of all the evil networks in town, prostitution, murder, fraud, arson, adultery, drugs, etc. Ben obviously takes great pleasure from his many vices. Bob feeds on pleasure or fear. Two, fire walks with Ben. In the last episode, he drinks a toast to his office fire and there were a number of extreme close-ups of Ben lighting his cigar. Not to forget the burning of the of the ledger scene with his brother Jerry. Quote, we have to burn something. Where are those hickory sticks? Also, Ben was instrumental in having the mill burn down. If we look at the show as, at some level, a struggle between wood and fire, then Ben is on the side of fire and therefore evil. A struggle between wood and fire. Yeah. Three. Sorry. Three. Our hypothesis is that the Great Northern Hotel is built on an ancient and sacred Indian site. We are way out on a limb here and we know it. <laughs> the hotel's decorations are littered with totem poles, Northwest Indian paintings, and a statue of an Indian chief in Coop's room. Also, remember in the first season that Ben's mad son wore an Indian headdress. Ben's desk sits in front of an Indian painting of an evil looking owl. Anyway, this goes on for like a lot longer. I just I wanted to once again indicate to people the level of conspiratorial thinking going on as the show is airing. So as you listen to our conspiratorial thinking and our deep theories on what the show is doing, I hope you know that even at the time this was going on. True. I wish I could like go back to when I was first watching Twin Peaks on sort of like, you know, VHS and crack open my 18-year-old brain or whatever and find out if I had a, a theory about who killed Laura Palmer. I, like, I don't remember particularly worrying about it or mm. something. Like maybe, maybe it's that I knew I would have kind of quicker access to the episodes or something than having to watch it a week apart. But I don't remember being particularly like concerned by it. I mean, I think I probably, I think I thought it is Ben. I don't, I don't know. I don't actually remember at all, but do, right. do you remember having like a theory? I think I already knew the first time that I watched it. You so did. It wasn't okay. Really a yeah. problem. I mean, it's, it's too bad you weren't recording a podcast at the time. God, no, Simon, believe me, you don't want to hear 18-year-old Kate oh rambling about Twin Peaks. I would literally, <laughs> I would kill a close relative to hear a podcast by 18-year-old Kate. I really would. Oh, God. Oh, man, that is very sweet of you. And if there's anybody out there listening to uh, to this who used to be a client at Sneak Preview Video where I worked, they probably remember having to listen to 18-year-old Kate talk about movies. If there are <laughs> any clients of Sneak Preview Video listening to this podcast, you're officially invited next week, just so you know. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. That's very nice. Okay. Um, yes. Anyway, so no, I think, uh, yeah, these are two solid episodes, and I'm very excited to talk about next week's episode when we're going to just focus on... Uh, 
just one episode, we're going to give it space to breathe. So Yeah, which will, of course, color all episodes that came previous, and uh, we will try not to trip over ourselves. So I am uh, I am on the Twitters at Hollow Minds. As I've cautioned many times before, I will probably yell at you about politics if you do follow me. Uh, Kate, you are at Cinement, C-I-N-E-M-E-N-T. And uh, that's it from us. Uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, we will be back next week. I hope you've enjoyed it. Exactly. Fuck guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. Guess we don't need them.